0: Well, it's wonderful to sing with you this morning, it's wonderful to worship the Lord with you this morning, and that last hymn in particular, I'm glad to stand with you in the love and in the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus from the cross. The text that we're going to look at this morning is what Alex read, Romans chapter 14 verse 1 through chapter 15 verse 7. It's an immense passage, it's a long passage, it's an extremely important passage, it's too much of a passage to deal with in any kind of a full way this morning, but I hope this will be an introduction, and I hope that you, under your leadership, will study this passage again and again and again. Some of the older elders in Mebon thought this was a passage that was very important for you to consider at the beginning of your church life. So the older men from Grace Reformed Baptist Church are commending this passage to your study. It's a passage that we really think should be molding in the life of each Christian church. And as you're just beginning, it's especially important that you think about this passage from now, from the very beginning, and that you come back to it again and again, and that you try, by the blessing of God, to conform yourselves more and more perfectly to the principles that are in this passage. The great concern of the passage is how diverse and even differing Christians, how diverse and even differing Christians are to dwell together in harmony and love and in an edifying way in the same local congregation. In America, in the West, it's just typical that people, Christian people split apart. And you've got one church where everybody that's comfortable with this thing gathered together. And another church where everybody's comfortable with this gathered together. It should not be that way. The people of God are by definition diverse. And the people of God until perfect are going to be differing on matters of ethics. And there are principles given in this text that are meant to hold us together. And not allow us to split apart. So that's why we'd like you to consider this passage this morning and for many, many uh, years to come. Why is that? It's because this perspective pleases God. How do you know what pleases someone? Uh, children, if, you're, if you want to please your parents, how do you know what to do? How do you know what pleases your parents? Well, you can know probably because the things that please them the most, they'll talk about a lot. Maybe they want you, maybe it pleases them to keep your room clean. Well, they'll talk about it A lot. And when you do it, they'll praise you, and they'll say, "How I'm so glad to see the way your room is this morning. And when you don't, they'll uh, say something. They'll, you, know, you, you, you forgot about your room this morning. Maybe they'll encourage you. Maybe it'll be a scolding. But if, if it's what pleases them, it's something they'll talk a lot about. Well, how do we know what pleases God? You read the letters of the New Testament that were written to churches or to ministers of churches, and there's one subject above any other subject that comes up again and again and again and again, and it's this subject. It's how the people of God are to dwell together with all their differences in unity and in love. It pleases God. It pleases God. So in this passage, the Apostle Paul is writing, of course, to the church in Rome, and he's aware of some problems in the church in Rome. Now, most of the book of Romans is not about problems. Most of the book of Romans is a very positive exposition of the most basic aspects of the Christian gospel. But Paul was aware of one significant problem in the Church of Rome, and it was a growing sense of disunity. So this whole section, it's an immense section. Somebody preached from this section, they, they, the title of their sermon was something about a huge doctrine for humble decisions. Huge doctrine. There's huge doctrine in this big passage about things that are actually rather unimportant. I want us to look at those. There are four headings I'd like us to consider. Four headings, and the third is where we're going to spend most of the morning. But there are four headings. The first are problems that Paul identifies in the Church of Rome. There are three. Uh, One is that there are very different levels of spiritual maturity and, and knowledge in the Church of Rome, just different levels of spiritual maturity and knowledge. There are some whom Paul regards as strong in the faith, Not simply strong in the exercise of faith, but strong in the faith, strong in the Christian faith. And there are others whom he describes as being weak in the faith. And I think the point of that language is that there were some believers who knew the faith very well. They knew the whole orbit of the Christian faith very well. And knowing that very well, they knew what the Lord wanted them to do. They knew where they they were at liberty. They knew where they were supposed to be constrained But there are others who didn't know the faith very well. They had faith. They had faith in the Son of God. They believed that Jesus was the Christ. They trusted Him as their Savior. They had saving faith but they weren't strong in the faith. They didn't comprehend the whole system. They didn't comprehend the ins and outs. They didn't comprehend where they were obligated, where they were free. Maybe they didn't comprehend the relationship of the Old Testament scriptures to the gospel. Maybe they didn't understand the ethics of, say, Stoicism, which some of them would have been saved from. Maybe, maybe some didn't quite understand what seemed right in that context as opposed to what is right in the Christian context. But there are different levels of maturity and knowledge. Also they actually did have different opinions. They had different opinions about diet. Some people thought they could eat anything. Other people thought they should not eat meat and they had to be vegetarians. Differences of opinion about diet. Also some of them had differences of opinion about days. Some people thought that some days should be very highly regarded as special. But other people thought, no, that's wrong. All days are the same. And they had differences apparently about drink also. Because Paul likens this issue of drinking wine, he brings that into the mix as well. Some people apparently thought it was fine to drink wine. Other people thought, no, we're not not supposed to have wine. Well, there are actual differences of opinion. But the worst problem is really not a problem that you have diverse people in the church. It's really not a problem that people have different opinions about ethics to some degree. But the real problem in the church was these people were beginning to have sinful dispositions toward one another. There were some who were despising, diminishing the others. There were some who were judging the others. There were conflicts and disputes and arguments taking place among them. Those are the problems. Different levels of knowledge and maturity, different opinions about ethical issues, and sinful attitudes that were being developed among the two camps of the strong and the weak Uh, The second heading I'd like you to consider is a presumption that Paul has. Moving away from the problems, it's a presumption that Paul has about them. And I think this is a... I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this presumption, but I think it qualifies a great deal of what the passage uh, says. It qualifies a great deal about what we should think. There's a presumption that Paul has, and that is he presumes that these Christians in Rome are serious Christian people. He presumes that these people are striving to please God. He presumes that their differences do not strike at the heart of the gospel. He does not presume that because they differ somebody should be disciplined. He does not presume that because he does not assume that their ethical differences will lead them away from Christ. He does not assume that they are hypocrites and therefore should be treated severely. Paul does assume that they are sincere in trying to please Christ as best they understand, according to their knowledge of the faith. Strong faith, weak. He assumes that in the in their context of their minds and consciences, they are sincerely trying to please God. Now, because the passage has been read, I'm, we're not going to look at every text again, but just look if your Bibles are open at Romans chapter 14, verse 5. This is not a statement now of what ought to be. It's a statement of what Paul is assuming to be true. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord For he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. You appreciate the language. He's saying those people who think that some days are special, they're doing that to the Lord. They're giving God thanks for that day, they're conducting themselves before the Lord in reference to that day. Those who don't think there's any special days, they're doing that before the Lord. Those who think that they have to be careful about eating meat, they are careful before the Lord. And those who think that they're free, they're doing it before the Lord. Now, that's a, that's a tremendously important thing to appreciate. Paul raises his concern about days in other places in the New Testament. He raises his concern about eating meat in other places in the New Testament. He raises concerns in, about days in the book of Galatians. He raises a concern about days in the book of Colossians. He raises a concern about meats in in, in 1 Corinthians. And in those places, he's severe. Because in those places, these subjects of days and meats and years are taking people away from the gospel. In Galatians, there are people that are concerned about special days because they're concerned about going back to the Mosaic Covenant. In the book of Colossians, there are people that are concerned about special days because they're getting involved in something that's some kind of a pre-Gnostic cult. And the people in Corinth, he's concerned about their eating meat because they're talking about meat offered to idols. Well, none of that exists here. There's no concern in Rome about anybody participating in idol sacrifices. There's no concern here about pre-Gnostic cults. There's no concern here about going back to the Old Covenant. None of those... There's a presumption here. None of those problems exist here. These people are serious Christians according to their knowledge are striving to do everything that they do for Christ now the third first was the problems second was presumption now the third heading are pastoral directives pastoral directives now in chapter 14 verse 1 through chapter 15 verse 7 there are at least 14 imperative verbs You all know what imperative verbs are? I'm trying to look at the children. How many of you would have studied English at this point? You know what imperative verbs are? Well, an imperative is a statement, do this. That's an imperative. The Ten Commandments were given in imperatives. Thou shalt not lie. That's an imperative. Imperative verbs are a statement of what you ought to do. Well, there are at least 14 of those verbs in this section. And in the future, it would be profitable perhaps to look at all 14 of the imperatives that are in this section. And in just a moment, I would like us to look at some of them. But let me say this. I'd like to say two things about these pastoral directives. One is that Paul does not express any concern that they come to the same opinions. He doesn't express any concerns. I want you to think exactly the same thing about these days, I want you to think exactly the thing, same thing about being a vegetarian. He, that, doesn't, that doesn't come up here at all. Paul identifies himself with the strong. Paul doesn't hide what his perspectives on this are. But that's not the focus of his concern at all. He could have played the card, you know, he could have played his authority card. He could have taken the mantle of an apostle and said, I'm going to use my apostolic authority to tell you what you must think about days and about diet and about drink. He doesn't. He doesn't. He gives them principles. And we're going to look at those principles. He gives them principles that would, hold, that would cause these people with all their differences to stay together. That's really important. It's, we need to appreciate that when you have a real Christian church and you have people converted out of all kinds of different backgrounds... And you have at any point in that church's life, you have some people who have been Christians maybe for a day and other people who have been Christians for a decade and some people who have a whole ancestry of Christians in their background and other people who have an ancestry of wickedness. There's going to be all kinds of differences among such people who become real believers. And it isn't essential that they all come to believe exactly the same thing about every ethical issue that can be imagined in the Christian world. That is not Paul's perspective here. But the second thing I'd like to say by way of introduction to these pastoral directives is that even though Paul is addressing those three issues in particular, what he says here can be applied to almost any kind of legitimate difference among the Lord's people. And that's very important for us to appreciate because I doubt that in this church or I doubt in many churches in Winston-Salem that everybody's arguing about whether or not you should be a vegetarian or whether you're allowed to be a meat eater. But the simple point I want to make is that what Paul does say to the believers in Rome who have these kind of problems and these kind of divisions and these kind of sinful attitudes can be applied to almost any issue where Christian people might differ. <clears throat> All this little bit of background, I hope it doesn't seem tedious to you, but just a little bit more background before we get into these directives that Paul gives. It's important to remember that there are some differences which cannot be tolerated. There are some differences which cannot be tolerated. Paul makes it very plain when he's writing to the Galatians that their difference, some of them thinking they should go back to Old Covenant days, some of them thinking that was not an acceptable difference. There are some doctrinal issues that strike at the Gospel where it's not acceptable. You cannot tolerate some kind of differences. But... There are some differences which must be tolerated. If the people of God have differences that, number one, do not strike at the heart of the gospel, and if, number two, are not contrary to any obvious biblical injunction, if we have differences that are not, do not strike at the heart of the gospel, and if those differences are not in contrast to a clear biblical injunction, we have to tolerate those differences. You appreciate the last part of what I said? There are some clear biblical injunctions. Thou shalt not lie. Well, we don't have the freedom, the church doesn't have the freedom to tolerate liars. Nobody can come up and say, well, I have my, my freedom. You know, I'm not under the law. I'm forgiven. I can lie when I need to. Absolutely not. There are some ethical issues that are crystal clear in the Bible. Cannot, to- cannot tolerate differences that strike at the heart of the gospel. Cannot tolerate differences where somebody is clearly violating something that the word of God says. Almost every other kind of difference is going to exist among the people of God, and the principles of this passage apply to those. Now bear with the tedium before we actually get to these pastoral directives. What kind of issues do arise in evangelical Christian churches that cause people to be divided? Well, the list is stunning. (laughs) I'm not going to stun you but let let me just give you some of the more obvious things that cause Christian people in churches to divide over one is politics can you be a good Christian and be a Republican can you be a serious Christian and be a Democrat can you vote for people that are morally challenged I mean people fall out over things like this it's a biblical principle to care for the poor Well, what's a right governmental principle to care the people of God differ on these things How should we educate our children? Some people are convinced that this is a responsibility which must be discharged by parents, that the parents must teach their children everything. Others say, no, no, we shouldn't have homeschooling because how should we use our money? Should we tithe? Can we buy the nicest house that we can afford, or should we choose to live more simply? Should we allow ourselves to buy nice homes and boats and cars and vacations and lay up treasures? Or what? A lot of differences of opinion about that among the people of God. How should we worship? Should we wear ties or not wear ties? Should we have guitars or not have guitars? Should we lift our hands or not lift our hands? Should we use liturgies or should we be freestyle? How should we worship? All kinds of differences about how we should worship. What about hair coverings? Doesn't Paul say that it's a shame for a man to have long hair, it's a glory for a woman? The reverse. It's a a shame for a man to have long hair, and that for a woman her long hair is a glory. Doesn't, Doesn't he say that? So should women have short hair or long hair? Should men have long hair? All kinds of differences of opinion about that. Should women wear hair coverings in the worship of God? Doesn't Paul say And then you have all kinds of differences of opinion about whether or not women should wear head coverings in the worship of God. How should we use the Lord's Day? What's the right mode of baptism? Are we required to have family worship? Or is it godless to not have family worship? Or especially pious if you do have family worship? You appreciate how many differences of opinion that can exist among the people of God. Well, people fall out over these differences. And it's the contention of the pastors back in Mebane, at least those who talked about this, that the principles of this passage hold such diverse people together and ought to hold such diverse people together. All right, there are all these imperative verbs. I'd like to draw your attention to 12 directives. Now, that's an ungainly number. I know This is point number three, right? Problems, perspective, and now pastoral directives, and you can say 12. Yeah, 12 and I know it's an ungainly number obviously we're not going to lift them at length I want, I want you to see them and then when we're done I'm going to try to summarize them under two headings, and you can remember the two if you don't remember the twelve number one is we must receive one another, we must welcome one another that's the big, that's the big directive of this whole passage, it comes up three times in the passage, that's how the passage begins chapter 14 verse 1 receive one, welcome one this is a social word. Welcome someone. Welcome someone into the fellowship, into the, into the circle of your love. Welcome someone into your home. Welcome them. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. And then chapter 7, therefore, verse 7. Therefore receive one another. Just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now that's the beginning and the end of this passage. What's the big issue for these diverse Christians? Receive each other, receive each other, receive each other, welcome each other. No right to exclude someone because of these different opinions. Different about days, different about diet, different about wine, different about all that whole list of things I went into. Differences that don't strike at the heart of the gospel. Differences that are not in violation of clear statements of the scriptures. Welcome one another. It doesn't say tolerate one another. It doesn't say just put up, welcome one another. We're supposed to welcome one another as Christ has received us. And how has the Lord received us? You can think about how you came to the Lord initially, or you can think about how you came to him in your devotions this morning. How does the Lord receive us? With all kinds of fault all kinds of sin, all kinds of shame. We have all kinds of areas, or at least many of us have areas where we know that we haven't got it right yet. We're struggling with some besetting sin. The Lord receives us. He welcomes us. He loves us. He has given himself on the cross for us. He has risen from the dead for us. He makes intercessions for us again and again. That's how he receives us. Well, that's how we're supposed to receive one another. And you think, you think of what the Lord knows about us. We go to him, and he forgives us, and he loves us, and he welcomes us. He's given us statements that are cemented in the Bible to ensure that we know that that's how he'll receive us. Well, we don't have any right to be any different. The Christian church, the people of God, the members of the Christian church are to welcome one another. They're to receive one another no matter what their differences are. The second directive is in chapter 14 verse 3 we must not despise one another chapter 14 verse 3 let him who eats let not him who eats despise him who does not eat we're not to despise one another we're not to show contempt for one another we're not to dismiss one another we're not to dishonor one another Here's somebody who has a different view of family devotions. Here's somebody who has a different view of what's appropriate conduct on the Lord's Day. Here's somebody who has a different view about how to use money and what kind of house to buy. Here you've got people like that, and you are on one side. You may not be dismissive of the person on the other side. You may not look down at them. You may not be contemptuous of them. You may not allow yourself to think they are somehow spiritually inferior to me. The third directive is we're not to judge anyone. That's also in verse 3. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. We're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to do that. We're not to despise one another and we're not to judge one another because God has received him. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Why should you not judge your brother? Because you have no standing. You do not have the standing to judge your brother. And for you to pretend that you have the right to assess him, to judge him, you're taking a prerogative that you don't have. We are not to judge one another. I have a master, and I'm accountable to him. My brother, who differs with me, has a master, and he's accountable to him. And I'd better not try to step between him and his master. I don't have the standing for that. We are not to judge one another. Paul's going to take this up again in in a few more verses and give more meat to this why we're not to judge one another. The fourth directive is that each one must be persuaded or convinced in his own mind. And you see that opened up in different ways from chapter 14, verse 5 through 9. But verse 5, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully persuaded in his own mind. Now, why should you be concerned to be persuaded in your own mind? This is a requirement that each individual give a lot of thought to his ethical opinions. This is a requirement that people are not indifferent and say, well, this is how I've been raised or this is what my background is. We're supposed to know. We're supposed to be persuaded in our mind. Those people who believed that they were supposed to honor days, they better be persuaded in their mind about those days. Why? Why? Because they're going to be judged. They're going to be judged. And the judgment is not going to be primarily did you keep the day or not? The judgment is primarily going to be Did you keep did you do what you thought I wanted? Did you do what you thought would glorify me? Did you do what you thought would please me? Look at how this opens up. Follow with me in verse seven. <clears throat> For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again. Or maybe more simply, it is, for to this end, Christ died and lives. That he might be the Lord, both of the dead and the living. Why did Jesus die and live not only for the forgiveness of our sins. He died and lives to be our Lord, to be the Lord of each one of us. Now, you can say there is more to the purpose for his death and resurrection, and that's correct, there is more. But the focus here is upon this. He died to triumph over death and hell and every power, and he lives as your Lord and my Lord. And therefore, we better not judge anyone. He is the one who has the right. You start being critical of your brother or your sister. You should ask yourself, when did I die for that? For that, when did I? When did I give my, When did I rise over the spiritual powers so that I can have authority? When did I? No. And you, you kind of shrink back and you say, I have no standing to judge anyone. Now, Paul is going to. This gets a little bit more complicated. But that was the fourth directive. The first was we're to welcome one another. The second is we're not to despise. The third is we're not to judge. The fourth is we're to be persuaded in our own minds. We're to be thoughtful about the conduct that we choose to follow because only the Lord has the right to tell us what to do. Now, the fifth, now we're getting a little bit repetitious, right? The fifth in verse 13 is do not judge anymore. Now, it's already made reference to how we must not judge but now he's bringing up again verse 13 therefore let us not judge one another anymore now why not he's given a second reason in the priest why should we not judge well number one is because we don't have the standing Jesus has died and lives to be Lord we don't have the standing but now there's another reason that he's just introduced and it's the judgment itself look at verse 10 But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, and then there's this quotation from Isaiah. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God, therefore let us not judge. You see the second reason? You are going to be judged. And he is going to be judged. And these issues of difference, they're going to come up in the judgment. And the one Lord, who is the only one in the universe who has the standing to be our judge, is going to make us accountable. Your brother is going to be accountable for what he thinks about his diet. And your brother is going to be accountable for what he thinks about the days. And you're going to be accountable too. So be careful to be well informed. And be careful to not be anybody else's judge because the one who has the right to judge is going to judge and he's going to judge you too don't judge anyone now those are pretty profound motives aren't they don't do it because only the Lord has the standing don't do it because you're going to be brought into the judgment yourself if you were one of those folks who believed say that the Passover was still a special day if you were one of those folks and if you had been raised generation after generation observing Passover and now you've become a Christian and you realize that Christ is the Passover that Christ is the Savior that he is the Messiah but you don't think it's right to stop observing Passover well Paul would be saying to that man don't you dare judge the man who thinks he's free to give up Passover you realize that you're going to be brought into the judgment and then the issue will not be whether or not you kept Passover It will be whether or not you are fully convinced in your own mind and whether or not you kept that day as unto me. Don't judge anyone. It's a dangerous prospect to allow yourself to judge anyone. The The sixth directive is the last part of verse 13, and I've simply entitled Restrain Your Liberty. Look at what he says. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our, in our brother's way. Resolve this. Be determined you're not going to judge anybody, but make sure you resolve this. I'm not going to be a problem to anybody. I'm not going to cause anyone to stumble. If I'm that brother who thinks it's fine to just forget Passover, I'm not going to press that upon my, the one whom I regard to be the weaker brother. I'm not going to press that because I might make him sin. I might make him give up that day when in his heart he really thinks he should still observe it. Don't you dare, Paul says. You resolve to restrain your liberty. If you think you have the freedom to do something or the freedom to no longer do something, if you think you have that freedom, restrain it lest you bring harm to somebody who might sin because of your persuasion. The seventh directive is in verse 15. Do not destroy or do not ruin the one for whom Christ died. This word to destroy or ruin is cause to break up. The reference is not to ultimate damnation. This is not a reference to the Lord destroying someone. This is a reference to you destroying someone, breaking him up, hurting him in spiritual ways. Don't do it. Don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. You think you're the stronger brother? and you're looking at your weaker brother, well, you're supposed to remember this. The Lord has died for him. The Lord has loved him so much that he died for him. The Lord is daily interceding for this weak, disappointing brother. Remember him. This is the one for whom Christ died. Christ is committed to redeeming him. You must not. You must be resolved. You must think about not causing your brother to stumble. The eighth directive is in verse sixteen, do not let your good be regarded as evil. You have a sense of what of something that's good. Stay on this one illustration. You think it's good the reverse illustration. You think it's you think it's good to give up Passover. You think that's good. Jesus is the Passover. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen. We now have the Lord's Supper. You think it's good to give up the Passover. Well, don't press your sense of what's good in such a way that it causes someone to stumble. Don't let what you think is good actually be hurtful. Don't let let what you think is good actually turn to a blasphemous posture for this brother, this weaker brother, for whom the Lord died. Now, why? Why should you be so concerned about this? Look at verse 16 and then 17. Therefore, do not let your good be evil spoken of. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit for he who serves Christ in this is acceptable to God and approved by men don't let your good be evil spoken of in this context it doesn't really matter whether you drink wine or not it doesn't really matter whether you eat meat or only vegetables it doesn't really matter whether you regard these days or not because the kingdom is not about that the kingdom is not about eating and drinking. The kingdom is about love and joy and peace and righteousness in Christ. So don't, don't take what you think is good and push it. Don't, because that's not what the kingdom is about. The kingdom is not about you pressing your views of, how, of what people ought to do. The kingdom is not about them. It's about love and about joy and about peace about righteousness as God defines righteousness. The ninth, the ninth directive arises out of that verse 19, therefore pursue that which makes for peace and the things which edify. Now there's an earlier admonition against receiving someone and then arguing with them. Don't receive anyone so that you can argue with them. Don't welcome somebody so you can straighten out. Don't do it. Rather, rather, rather. Pursue things that edify and promote peace. If it's become obvious to you that your brother and you do not agree about vegetarianism, you just don't. Forget it then. Pursue the things that edify and the things that pursue peace. It's not essential. The kingdom of God isn't about that stuff. So don't go there. Rather, pursue what edifies. Pursue what builds up. Pursue what promotes peace the tenth directive verse 20 and 21 is to do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food now he's already said don't destroy the one for whom Christ died now the focus is not upon the one for whom Christ now it's the work of God what do you suppose that refers to don't destroy the work of God it could refer to the work of God in the soul of your brother don't destroy that work it could refer to that probably is something larger than that though don't destroy the kingdom here's the kingdom the kingdom of God has come the kingdom of God has come sweeping up men women and children into it bringing them savingly to Christ he's brought them into the church this kingdom and this church which is characterized by peace and joy and righteousness don't destroy it don't destroy that work Don't destroy that work of the kingdom of God. It's greater than you and greater than your puny interests and your pathetic views of what's right and wrong. Don't do it. Don't allow yourself to engage in any kind of conduct with your brothers and sisters that would impair the work of God or destroy the work of God. The 11th directive is keep your liberty to yourself. This has a context, of course, but look at the text in chapter 14, verse 22, keep your liberty to yourself. First, first, do you have faith? Now, I realize there are different translations here. You have faith. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Now, there's just not enough time to go into all But there is a context, right? I mean, it's, The context is, in the context of, of divisions and arguments and the rest, if you're among the strong and you have faith to do something, keep it to yourself. Just do it before God. You don't need to make a point about it. You don't need to get the others together and try to persuade them. Don't do it. Restrain yourself. Restrain your liberties. Do it before God if you think you have the right to do it before God. And the last directive, number 12, we're back now at the beginning, number 12, is that we are to imitate Christ's reception of us. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now the ESV says, makes it a little bit different. It says we're to bear with the faults of the weak. That's really a poor translation. Paul isn't accusing anyone of being righteous or being at fault. The, The proper translation is the weaknesses of the weak, the infirmities of the weak. We who are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. They're weak. Okay? Fine. We accept that. We ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification, for even Christ did not please himself. Why would you be concerned to press your views about Passover upon someone else? The only reason would be to please yourself. It would be for you to look right. It would be for you to have your way. It would be for you to dominate your brother's mind. It's not because you want to please the Lord. And that's what he's saying. You who are strong, just just, just accept the infirmities of the weak. We don't live to please ourselves. We lived it just like the Lord. The Lord did not live to please himself. As it written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Again, verse 7, Therefore receive one another just as Christ has received you. You can only wonder what the different factions in Rome were thinking as Paul got to the end of this. Like, I think everybody would have felt pretty low. Those who were strong and those who were weak, those who had been receiving each other to doubtful disputations, those who had been quarreling, those who had been, would have felt pretty small because none of them, none of them could have thought that their views are so important and so right that none of this matters. Well, I've made reference to these 12 things. You're probably not going to go away remembering 12 things. So let me ask you to think about how these 12 really do orient around and can fall under two great principles. The first, of course, is that we're to walk in love. And the second is that we are to appreciate the lordship of Christ. We are to walk in love toward each other, and we're to appreciate the lordship of Christ in reference to each other. We're to love each other, so we're to welcome each other. We're not to quarrel. We're not to judge. We're not to dismiss. We're to love each other, so we're to welcome each other. We're not to judge one another. Why shouldn't we judge one another? Well, because we love each other. But we should also not judge one another because of the lordship issues. We're not anybody's lord. Jesus is the lord. We have to leave the brother that disagrees with us. We have to leave him to his submission to Christ's lordship. We have to be submissive to our Lord. He has to be submissive to his Lord. And we do not have the standing to get between the Lord and him. We, we, why don't we judge people? Because we love them. But because we have a, a proper view of the lordship of Christ. And we don't try to lord it over anybody else. Because we're supposed to love one another. We should resolve not to hurt each other. Or put a stumbling block in each other's way. Because we love one another, we should be resolved to edify each other. But not only because we love each other, but because of the lordship issue. The Lord has established a kingdom. And in that kingdom, eating and drinking and all that stuff is irrelevant. In his kingdom, love, joy, peace, righteousness. Well, why should we treat each other the way this passage says? Because we love them but also because the Lord is the Lord and he has established the nature of his kingdom and we better not be out of step with what the Lord wants his kingdom to be. Ultimately, we are to lovingly receive each other because Christ has received each of us and our greatest individual concern is that we imitate Jesus and we honor his lordship over us and over one another. Problem, presumption, practical directives, two reduce to twelve. Twelve reduce to two. And now, finally, and very briefly, the prayer. Problem, presumption, pastoral directives, and, and the prayer. The prayer is in chapter fifteen, verse five and six. It's a good thing to use written prayers a good thing to use written prayers, especially if they're written in the Bible. And this would be a good prayer to incorporate into your prayer life as a congregation. I'm reading from the New King James. I don't I think many of you are reading from the ESV. There's a slight difference. Listen. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is addressed, this translation, the God of patience and comfort, the God of hupomene, the God of steadfastness, the God of reliability, the God of patience, and of comfort, parakletos, the God who draws people to his side, the God who is close and in that closeness he may exhort in that closeness he may encourage in that closeness he will bring whatever his fatherly heart believes should be brought but it's closeness he's praying to the God of patience steadiness and the God of comfort and the request is that God would grant you to think to think the same with one another according to Christ. To think the same. Not to hold the same positions. Not to have the same opinion about the days and the diet. But to think the same. Where these principles he's put out, we were united in those things. He, he, he pleads with the God of patience and comfort that God would grant them this ability to think the same. And then there's a secondary purpose that with one accord, the idea is with one purpose and in one mouth you would glorify God, not in the same posture of ethical opinions, but in the posture of what he's written in this passage that with with one purpose, one purpose of mind, that you would work together with a common voice to glorify God. It's only because of our sins that such a passage even needs to be written. Well, we do have our sins. Our sins are with each one of us. The Lord has forgiven us. We have run to him and we keep to him for mercy and he keeps forgiving us and restoring us and receiving us. We need to be just as gracious with one another and not divide over things that do not strike at the heart of the gospel and over things which are not clearly spelled out in terms of right and wrong in the Bible. And where these 12 principles reduced to two are actually worked out, very diverse people, will love each other and hang together with one purpose in mind, to glorify God. Don't let yourself think that the best church is the one where everybody has the same view. And don't let yourself that the best church for you is to finally find one where everybody thinks the same thing about diverse issues as you think. That's That's not the goal of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not advocating a whole bunch of different churches spring up in Rome according to their different perspectives. He was advocating they stay together and that these perspectives would govern them. Let me just say these things quickly as I close. One is that you need to train your consciences to see the difference between what the Bible actually says and what you might accept as a personal conviction. There's a big difference family worship? What does the Bible say about family worship? Very little. What are the principles that should govern us? There are a lot of principles. What's the end line? There may not be a consensus among the people of God. That's fine. That's fine. There's a biblical principle that children are to raise their parents in the fear and admonition of the Lord that may or may not involve family worship. you understand what I'm saying? I'm not speaking against family worship. I'm not trying to I'm just saying, be careful to train your mind as to what the Bible clearly says and what you allow to go beyond that and make matters of personal conviction. Secondly, just by way of reminder, do not impose your conviction upon anyone. Now, you should impose the things that are clear in the Bible upon each other, but don't don't impose your convictions on someone else. Assume you do think you should have family worship every night, and family worship should involve singing and prayer well, okay, do it. Don't press that upon anybody else. I'm not picking on family worship. Any one of these things that were in that list could come up here. Don't highly value your own opinion. Paul actually says that in Romans 12, do not be twelve sixteen, Romans, do not be wise in your opinion. Don't give so much elevation to what you've worked out. Walk in love. Honor the Lordship of Christ. I hope your goal in this church, in its beginning and in your vision for what it should be over the course of time, I hope your goal is to create a church where serious believers who have honest differences of opinion can be members of the same church. And that means that there will be differences which are not insignificant. Some may be substantial But the principles of this passage will keep you from division and they will keep you from strife and they will keep you from damaging one another and they will keep you from grieving the spirit and they will enable you with a common perspective and one voice to bring glory to God and that is worth your lives. That is worth investing your lives. May God make this passage, Romans 1, through fifteen seven, to be a governing passage in your life as a congregation. Let's pray. Our oh, heavenly Father, we are glad to be together. We are glad for your forgiveness and for your great grace. We are glad that you have reached into our lives at different points, rescued us from what we were and from what we were becoming, and you brought us to yourself. We thank you for this group of people. We thank you for their desire to honor you in the formation of one of your churches. We thank you for the What appears to be evidence that you have given that they should indeed do this and that you are, in fact, making them, forming them into one of your churches. Please bless them. You have blessed them. Please continue to bless them. Help them to understand this text. Help them in in their differences to be (coughs) united. Help them to not judge and to not dismiss and to not act as one another's lords, but help them to love and to embrace and to edify and to cheer and to help. May this church be such that none of the children are ever embarrassed by strife or division, that none of the children are ever hurt by watching their parents be hurt by division and strife. Free them from that. Grant, please, blessing. Grant that they would would be a full picture of your kingdom, of love and joy and peace and goodness and righteousness under the influence of the Holy Spirit.